Genesis 1, 26, 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Father in heaven... We have been given your son, the offer of redemption to pay the price of our sin. We have been given the spirit to apply that work. And we ask now for the spirit to be particularly active. Active in me that I would speak your words to your people. We don't need my words. We don't need me. We need you. That your spirit would be active in all of us, in your people, that we may hear your word, have our minds changed, have our hearts encouraged and convicted, have our our wills strengthened, that we may obey you more. May your spirit be active here today. Now we know the world does not want this message going out because it condemns the world. We know our flesh does not want to hear this because it condemns our flesh. We know the devil doesn't want us to hear this because it condemns the devil. And so we pray that you would stop the distractions, stop the temptations, stop the deficiencies, if for just a time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's a very influential book. came out in 1967. A book by a guy named Desmond Morris. He was the curator of mammals at the London Zoo. Now, nobody in here was alive in 1967 and old enough to remember that year. But the name of the book was The Naked Ape. Right? The Naked Ape. And a book I've actually never read. I don't feel the desire to read it. But it's very intriguing because of what uh, Desmond Morris was attempting to do. After having been the curator of mammals, he was very well uh, understood on mammals and you know, all the different monkeys and chimpanzees and everything. And he attempted to explain the human condition from the perspective of monkeys. Thus, the naked ape. We're not, we're not men and women, we're manimals, right? We're, we're animals of just a different kind. And so he wrote in an attempt to explain why we are the only apes that don't have hair everywhere, that have different features. And it was very intriguing as he attempted to explain it, the thing he really could not get around was the idea of relationship. How do we explain relationship? And what he ended up doing was reducing it to human sexuality. And it was very intriguing. His whole whole premise was why why are people naked? And supposed to having hair everywhere, well, is to promote sexuality. Why are you know human women shaped differently than all monkeys, particularly in uh, you know their parts that bathing suits cover? Well, that's to improve sexuality, so to promote uh, the species. It's what's promoted us all across the planet. And it's amazing how much this type of thinking has influenced uh, world and American culture. The curator of primates at the London Zoo really beginning to explain we're just monkeys without 
hair. But it's funny, as people begin to criticize his argument, they begin to say, look, even the people that you know, believe we are monkeys, they say, look, your, your explanation is bogus. You can't explain relationship this way. You can't explain the relationship that a husband and a wife have this way. You can't reduce it to that. It's too small. It's too simple. It's too weak. There's something deeper. You can't explain the relationship that we have with our children and just reduce it to survival of the species. <laughs> the affection and love and fondness and relationship I have with my children is not simply promoting the species. There's something deeper there. You can't say simply our physiology is developed to promote sexuality. That, that's ridiculous. And even his own people began to criticize him. But it's amazing how much that thinking still remains today. Where we live in a culture that sees people as animals, not separate from them. Right? You all, I turned 35 this year. I did middle school in Mecklenburg County, just across the state line. I was taught in fifth and sixth grade, so that's a handful of decades ago, that people were animals. It was not actually until I got to college and seminary where it really began to click. No, we're not animals. We're totally different than the animals. We're something other than the animals. But it's amazing. That's 20 years ago, and I got that then. And how much more our culture has bought into it. People are not animals. We're separate. We're different. We're going to see that in the text today. Right, you remember the passage, what's taking place here. You have chapter 1, verse 1. God both introduces the theme and accomplishes the theme. Out of nothing. There's nothing. There's not space. There's not time. There's not energy. There's not matter. There's nothing. And then God speaks and it is. And then as he has made energy and matter and made all things visible and invisible, whether the angels are made here, we don't know, he begins to take that creation and create all of the beautiful intricacies of it, creating light and creating a planet that has an infrastructure and oceans and water and mountains and land, and then beginning to fill those things with fish and the sea and the great sea creatures and the birds in the sky and all of the different cattle and creepy crawly things on the planet until we get to here. And you've seen, as we've talked about this the last several weeks, that you know, the emphasis here is that this is created out of nothing. And it's created and the story is told from the perspective of the earth. And two themes really are showcased. One is to showcase the glory of God. That God would think of cows and make them. And at the same time, thinking of cows, he would think of dragonflies. I mean, you would think the person who could create a cow could never create a dragonfly or a hummingbird. With just the level of difficulty and intricacy, cow. He makes all of this, but the pinnacle of it, you know, showcasing his glory, is then manifested in people. So we pick up the text in the middle of the sixth day, and God begins to deliberate. And he's going to talk about here, as he creates people, he's going to create them in the image of God, and we're going to look at three things the image of God means. What does the image of God mean? First, the image of God means a special nature, right? A special nature. And by that, I don't mean like nature, like trees and aardvarks and armadillos. I'm meaning like the essence of who we are, what makes us, what comprises us, what makes me, me is special. 
right, so you pick up in 26, and then God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And you think, wow, that is a loaded half verse right there. And it has all kinds of very interesting questions as we look at it. First, then God, singular, says, let us, plural, make man, plural, in our image, plural, after our likeness, plural. But then when we get to 27, and God created, singular, man, in his singular, own singular image. What's going on? This is very complicated. I mean, this is very difficult. Now, in English, we don't tend to delineate singular and plural very often, unless you're in the South and you have that unbearably sophisticated word of y'all, right? Second person plural. It's very useful grammatically. But as the text picks up, we actually have God beginning what we would call kind of self-deliberation. Right? And we all have had those circumstances where when it's time to face a decision, we begin to kind of dialogue with ourselves and begin to refer to ourselves as we talk about it. All right, what are we going to do here? Are we going to go this way? Or are we going to go that way? What am I going to do? And you know, a lot of times when we do that, we'll actually switch to plural. And that's what God is doing as he's beginning to discuss what is he going to create? How is he going to create people? He switches to this self-deliberative plural, which we find out later is Trinitarian. Why is there a plural here? Why do we have a plural creation in 26 and a singular in 27? Well, because this is a Trinitarian God. He's one God, three persons, using a plural to describe the three and a singular to describe the one. Now, why is that important? Well, you're going to see here in just a second. This unbearably complex God who even in the grammar, the grammar can't cover him, right? I mean, there's no grammar for Trinitarian. <laughs> I mean, you don't have grammar for what is one that exists in three, one God, three persons. What grammar do you use? There's, there's nothing to compensate for that. We don't have that category in language. So we use plural sometimes, singular sometimes. This Trinitarian God, this unbearably complicated and beautiful God says, let us make man the pinnacle of this creation and let us make him in our image. And you would go, well, that's new. Because everything thus far has been made from nothing. In fact, actually, the way that the animals are made from nothing, it's like the earth itself is giving birth to them. All right, 24. Let the earth bring forth these things. Now, they're made from nothing, but the way the language is structured is to make you see their connection is with the earth itself. The cows and the creepy things are connected to the earth. The great sea creatures and the fish are connected to the sea. The birds are connected to the air. Where are people connected? The God who started this. And so you would all automatically, reading through this, have to go, whoa, this is different. These people aren't connected to the land. These people aren't connected to the monkeys. These people aren't connected to the creepy crawlies on the ground. These people are connected to God. And something is different. In fact, actually, it says, let us make in our image in the image of God. And many of us have heard many sermons or many teachings on this. And I would contend that many of them are tremendously helpful. But I'm sure most of us have encountered in some portion of our lives, some form or fashion, some sort of terrible definition of what the image of God means. 
We've all heard the sermons or their teachings where it says, well, what is the image of God? And you have explanations that say, well, the image of God means you have a soul. Right? Many of us have actually said that. I know I've said that. The image of God means you have a soul. <clears throat> Wrong. It's a side effect, but that's not entirely it. Or to say that the image of God means that these are the, the pinnacle of creation. This is the highest part of what God's creation is. Eh, wrong. Also true, side effect. Or to say that these people are in charge of creation. Eh, wrong. Or to say that these people are self-aware. Eh, wrong. Or to say these people are really smart in comparison to everything else. Their brains function better. Eh, wrong. Or to say these people actually have the ability to feel. Eh, wrong. Now, why am I belaboring this point is because when we actually begin with a wrong understanding of what the image of God is, it creates all kinds of difficulties later for us. And I'll give you a couple of illustrations. One, well, actually, they're both with monkeys, you know, gorillas and such. It's amazing. They're teaching them to use sign language. I don't know if you all know this, actually, but they're teaching, you know, gorillas and such to use sign language, which is amazingly uh, wonderful because you're beginning to see there's actually more to this creation than what we actually ever understood. Because these animals are able to talk back. You're like, wait a minute. We always said that our language is part of the image of God. That's what made us special. We have the ability to talk and nothing else does. Ain't wrong. They can too. And the interesting thing, and this is one that is just so unbearably intriguing to me. They had a conversation, second illustration, with gorillas via sign language. And one of the things, the gorilla broke its toy. I don't know what it was. It was probably a, you know, a car or a tree or a house or something. Broke it. And when the sign language person went to go ask the gorilla, who broke your toy? The gorilla said, well, the dog did. And the sign language, went, oh, now this is captivating. The trainer's like, oh, this is a gym because it's lying. And they said, no, 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 no. Who broke your toy? Again, sign language. And the gorilla, the whole time, said the dog did. Blamed it on a different thing the whole time knowing that it had done it. Now, the funny thing is, is by defining the image of God so poorly, what do we start doing is we start going, well, oh, crud. That thing must have the image of God, too. Eh, wrong. It doesn't. It's a monkey. It's a gorilla. But because we've used an incorrect definition, we run into all kinds of crazy problems when things like that happen. What do we do with it? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. We're not the only things that lie. Well, no. Anybody who's owned a cat has known they've lied for years. <laughs> So what is a better definition here? Well, it's actually implied in the text in a way that we don't kind of understand because our, you know, our, our language doesn't pick it up. Let us make man after our image and after our likeness. Those image and likeness terms are old, 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 old Hebrew terms that mean to break off a part of a bigger thing in such a way that bears its resemblance. Right? That's the technical one. And you're all like, well, what does that mean? Well, fair enough. A great illustration would be as if you were making a clay sculpture and you broke off an extra piece of the clay. You're like, well, is that clay the sculpture? No. Is it part of the sculpture? No. Does it resemble the sculpture? Well, yes. Similar composition, similar type of feel, similar type of texture, similar but not the same. That's actually what those words are kind of meaning in the actual Hebrew. 
And so when you begin to think about, well, what does that mean for the image of God? You actually have a much better definition is it's not that we have a soul. It's not that we have morality. It's not that we have love and affection. It's not that we have those things. It means something bigger. It means that every part of us is shaped like God. Hear that again. Every part of us is shaped like God. Calvin said, there was not a part of man, not even the body itself in which some sparks of God did not glow. Meaning my prematurely gray hair in some form or fashion is bearing the image of God. Meaning the shape of my body, the fact that I'm six feet tall, I have two legs that are functional, two arms, one of which works better than the other one, I'm left-handed, all of that is bearing the image of God. And the way that women can give birth and dudes can't is part of the image of God. And the way that I can feel and think and reason, that's part of the image of God, meaning every aspect of who I am, who you are, is part of the image of God. Now, this is an amazingly cool thing to think about. The fact that dudes can grow beards, ladies can't. (laughs) I was going to make it, then I just stopped most of the time. That is true. That's part of the image of God. And to think that there's a way in which facial hair can show the image of God. And the way that creativity in humanity and intimacy and relationship and all of these different parts and parcels of who we are can show the image of God. Now that image is created here perfectly and we're going to find out in chapter 3, Adam and Eve break it. In fact, Adam ruins it. It's like taking this amazing mirror which is reflecting God Now notice when you look at God in the mirror, you don't actually see God. You're seeing the reflection of him, right? The same way when we look at the moon, we're seeing the sun's light. When that mirror gets shattered, it still reflects. It just doesn't reflect very well, right? For those that have been sadly uh, had to go through the experience of breaking a cell phone, shattering the screen, the phone still works-ish a lot of times, but it doesn't look very good, does it? but it still kind of functions, and that's what happens with the image of God. Now, okay, so this image means that we have this special nature that's shaped after God himself. Well, what do we do with that? I mean, who cares? Well, I mean, what's the big deal about that? Oh, okay, who cares? Well, it actually has all kinds of really intriguing ramifications. Is it means that right now, who am I looking at? I'm looking at God being reflected off of people. Now notice, you're not God. I'm not saying you're God, right? No Shirley MacLaine's here. You're the reflection of him, though. You're the image of him. You bear that. Now that image is broken, right? And our bodies understand that. Some bodies in here work better than other bodies. Some bodies in here are older than other bodies. Some bodies are healthier than other bodies, right? I understand that. We have sick kiddos. We're reflecting the image of God differently, but when we look at people, we're seeing his image. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that we need to have that kind of fixed in our brain. Next time you get cranky and you just get nasty, get mean, 
get grumpy and decide to just tear the other person to shreds. What are you doing? You're assaulting God's image. You're assaulting the reflection of God. Well, that's not good, is it now? Puts it in a little different perspective than simply being nasty to some other human being, isn't it? You're not just being nasty to a, you know, it's not like, oh, I smashed an ant. Oops, sorry. Oh, I was grumpy today. Oops, sorry. I assaulted the image of God. Well, that's not good at all. Put it in a different illustration. Say I made an effigy of the president of the United States. Not talking about which president it is, just whichever president was in office. And I went out to the side of the street and I took that effigy right out in front of the street and I hung it and then I lit it on fire. What would happen to me? Would it go well for me in this country? Why? Because I'm assaulting the image of authority. But yet when I sin against my neighbor, I'm assaulting the image of God. Much better authority than his silly president. Another illustration, when I hate myself or hate my body, what am I actually hating? Well, I'm just not tall enough. I wish I were taller. Or I'm not slender enough. I wish I was more slender. Or I wish I didn't have such a large nose. Or my ears are too big or whatever it is. You know what? For me, my too big of nose and too big of ears reflect the image of God. I don't know how. But they do. Actually puts in a little different perspective, doesn't it? When we actually hate our bodies and show loathing to our bodies, what are we actually doing? Is We're showing loathing to the image of God. Well, that's not good now, is it? Kind of puts that in a little bit different light, doesn't it? My body my mind, my insides, my outsides, my visible parts and my invisible parts are reflecting the image of God. I should probably treat my image and your image a bit more carefully. Well, it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just give us an image fashioned after the likeness of a representation showing a portion of but it continues. And God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, so we got that. It's a, it's a special nature. There, there's a special aspect to this of the very essence of who people are. But it also means, secondly, a special function. So special nature, special function. And what is the function? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. And this is one of those interesting ones. I love how evolutionary biologists are trying to figure out answers for why humans have taken over the planet. You know, is it because our brains are bigger and we have the capability of higher reasoning? How about the fact that God gave it to us? That's what the old theologians have said from the very beginning, because that's what the Bible says. Why have humans taken over the planet? Because God gave it to us. Part of his image is that of authority. Notice, he made the creation. He spoke it into existence. We're going to find out in the next chapter. He made Adam out of the dirt. He made Eve out of his rib. He made it. It belongs to him. He is the authority over it. As part of that image, guess what? 
we have authority over it. That's part of the very essence of who people are. It's part of what it means to be human, is to have a special function in creation, to have authority. For me to impose my will on creation, because in a sense, it belongs to me. I have authority. Does that mean that I can treat it flippantly? No. Does that mean I can destroy it? No. But that I have authority over it. We'll give you an illustration. We're teaching our kids already this principle in seed form. We teach them, who does the stuff, this house and the stuff in it belong to? Well, first it belongs to God. And God has given it to who? Mommy and Daddy. So when they're playing with the toys, whose toys are they playing with? They're playing with Mommy's and Daddy's toys. Now, I loan them to them, and they're welcome to play with the Legos, and they're welcome to play with the balls, and they're welcome to play in their rooms, but it does not belong to them. It belongs to me. And so when they break a wall, they're not breaking their wall, they're breaking my wall. But yeah, they still have authority over what they're doing. Am I telling them how to play with their toys? No. Am I telling them what balls to play with or how to play with them? No. Am I telling them that they can't use the foam bowling set? No. That is their toys. They're designed to be played with. But who's in charge? They're in charge over it, and I'm in charge over them. The same relationship that we have with the earth. We are placed in charge of the earth. It's ours. But it's not ours. It's God's. And so we are commanded to exercise authority over it to take control, to take charge, not to just let it run wild and to let us run wild with it. Let's skip to the next point. We have a special nature. We have a special function, that of authority. But it's really intriguing that God does not stop there, but he creates a special relationship, a special connection as part of the image of God for us. And look at how he continues Right? Verse 27. Now notice most of your text, 27 is offset, right? It doesn't continue the same paragraph. And if you're kind of English Bible savvy, that means, hey, just pay attention. This is poetry. We've switched from standard kind of rhetorical, just normal historical prose narrative. And we've switched to poetry. And Hebrew poetry loves to rhyme. But Hebrew, you can only rhyme so many things with at the end. So they rhyme ideas instead of sounds. Nowhere near as pleasant to rhyme as English. So they rhyme ideas. And you see those ideas rhymed in verse 27. God created man in his own image. Take that idea, flip it backwards. In the image of God, God created them. He created them. So you have one, then you flip it the other way. Same idea, just repeated backwards. And then a summary statement. Male and female, he created them. And this is an amazingly cool thing because of what it's implying is you have a special nature, you have a special function, but there's a special connection, a special relationship that's part of the essence of who people are. Now, what do I mean by that? 27 is key because of the theme that it introduces. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular, Male and female, he created. So meaning male and female are essential to that image. 
They're essential to the image of God, meaning you want to see the image of God most clearly, you have to have boys and you have to have girls. You have to. And why? Well, because you want to be really technically and heavy theologically, women show a different aspect of the image of God than men are capable of. That makes total sense. Because if you think about it, right, if all parts of me are showing the image of God, my wife has different parts to her than I do. She can have babies. I can't. Well, if that's part of her function, guess what? That's part of the image of God she's showing that I can't. Like, not only am I not, I'm unable to show that aspect of the image of God. Right? If you're listening to the radio, this is another one that's just mind-boggling things that scientists are finally beginning to figure out. Rush had this on a couple of weeks ago where scientists are beginning to discover that boys and girls are different. And you're like, oh, my gracious A five-year-old has figured that out and mastered that concept at five. And you've taken a PhD in 25 years of study to figure out what a five-year-old intuitively knows. Boys and girls are different. And they're different for a reason, because they're showing different parts of the image of God. I say this kind of half-jokingly, but women show the mystery of God far more excellently than boys do. There's an aspect of just mystery and befuddlement that is amazing, right? Transcendence that just boys don't do. It's an amazing thing. Women also tend to show the beauty of God far better than boys do. I don't know very many beautiful boys, and the ones that I do, I'm not really good friends with, I have to say. (laughs) Women show that so much more effectively. Men tend to show strength in a different way, right? Tend to have bigger muscles. We're showing the glory of God. Now, what does that mean for the church? Well, it's been said, one of the things that unbelievers level against the church is that the church want to dominate and domineer their women. And I'm like, that is the biggest load of garbage ever. Because if we actually have a biblical understanding of what he has put in the text here is that women are essential. Because without women in the church, you can't see God's glory as well. Likewise, without men, you can't see God's glory as well. You have to have both. And you need balance. It means that we should be showing great care and kindness to the opposite gender. You know, we have those jokes that everybody knows and not everybody tells, disparaging the other gender. You want to disparage your own gender, that's fine. Don't disparage the other gender because they're showing the glory of God in a way that you don't get chance to. Probably not good to make fun of them. Probably not good to poke fun of them. Probably not fun to talk down about them because you don't know what aspects of God's glory They're showing entirely. You may be making fun of God. That's not good. Not good at all. And then lastly, as we look at this, is to understand the significance and the specialness of human relationships in general, but even more importantly, so marriage itself. This is actually the answer to homosexual marriage today. It's a no-no. Why? 
because it's redundant in the image of God. It's incomplete. That's why homosexuality is a no-go. At its most basic level, it's not because it can't reproduce. It's not simply because it's, you know, it's sinful. Why is it sinful? It's because it's a duplication of the image of God instead of the fullness of it. Instead of a completion of it. It's taking God's image and wronging it instead of writing it. You see, this is a theme that is so lost today. And it's one of those things that's only going to get worse as culture learns to be academically consistent with evolution. Hey, think about it. Evolution says at its core what rules, what, what reigns at the end of the day? Chaos. At the end of the day, ultimately, chaos wins. Which means the reason why I'm here is dumb luck. The reason why you're here is dumb luck. And so you have no inherent value except to promote my prolonged existence. That's actually the ethics that evolution teaches. Now, we don't ever actually hear it said that explicitly because no one has the courage to actually say that. The ethics of evolution are this. Survival of the fittest, if applied appropriately, is to say the only reason you exist to me is to ensure that I live longer. Meaning if I can take advantage of you, I will. Meaning if I have to kill you, I will. If it means I have to steal from you, I will, as long as I live longer. That's the ethics of evolution. And guess what? We're beginning to see that happening out there, aren't we? The first phases of it. Where? Abortion. Well, it does, image of God doesn't matter. We talked about a couple weeks ago, euthanasia for 12-year-old children in Belgium. Well, it's fine. It's okay. It doesn't matter. They're not in anybody's image. They're accidents. They're chaos. We have something to offer different. And the message that we have to offer is this, that people are important because God has made them so. You see, we walk out these doors, everybody we encounter in here as well is simply looking for meaning and identity to answer the question, who am I and why am I special? And guess what? We have verses telling us that very thing. In fact, actually, verses saying, look, these people, this image is so special that Jesus is going to die for them by name. He's not going to die for the monkeys. Guess what? Monkeys don't make it to heaven. They get burnt up. There'll be animals in heaven. They're going to be remade animals, probably not monkeys. The gorillas don't make it. The primates don't make it. The mammals don't make it. We make it. Because this image is so special, God chose to redeem it. Hopefully it adds a little bit of perspective as we go about our week this week, how we interact with our coworkers, how we interact with those things called children that drive us crazy, or that person that cuts us off in front of us in traffic that we want to yell at and explain to them how poor their driving habits are. <laughs> They're bearing the image of God. We should probably behave differently. Father in heaven, forgive us. Forgive us for our sins against one another, against your image and against you. Fill us with Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.